Hello, welcome to the Reforming Worship Podcast, brought to you by the Church of Philadelphia in Traverse City, Michigan. A 21st century Reformation cry for the Christian church to return to the scriptures and worship God as he has prescribed in the Bible. I'm Andrew Smitty, your host and content manager, introducing Pastor Caleb Leach, Minister of Word and Sacrament, as we continue to walk down our series on the atonement. Pastor Caleb? Thanks, Andrew. So, um, kind of left with a cliffhanger last time, which is that God does not forgive sin. He does not forgive sin. But we also talked about how Christ in propitiation, in, in hilasterion, how Christ with that sacrifice that removes the wrath of God through double imputation, that is his righteousness imputed to the believer and the sin of the believer imputed to Christ, the absorbing of God's wrath, the bearing of God's wrath in our place. Sins are not forgiven, but sinners are And that's really just jumping off using last episode as the springboard. We laid all the the ground for that um, last last time. Really wanting to stress that in your mind, it's very common to say that God uh, loves sinners, but He hates sin. Um, but nevertheless, this the sin isn't thrown into hell while the sinner is is saved. That, that's not how it works. Uh, in Psalm five five, God comes right out and says that He hates all who do iniquity. Your sin will be dealt with or it has been dealt with. Those are the two possibilities, right? Number one, here's the first possibility. Your sin will be dealt with in an eternity in hell or the other, and this is our hope, our sin was dealt with in the cross of Christ. God in Christ bore the wrath of the Father in our place. There is no sin that will go unatoned for. There is no sin that will go unpunished. But Christ has taken the punishment in our place. So why the eternality of hell? Maybe we'll do a whole show on this sometime. The eternality of hell is because God is infinitely holy. Any sin against God is worth an infinite punishment. How was Christ suffering so? Um, how was Christ suffering so uh, so temporal, so so relatively short? Well, because he too is infinitely holy, and to bear the wrath of God in our behalf, he he can absorb an infinite punishment, being himself everything that holds um, what God is, who God is. The Greek uses the term theoditas. Everything that makes God God is in Christ. Or um, as Calvin said, he's autotheos. He's very God of himself. So now we're talking about the intent of the atonement, and this is what um, this is this is what gives Calvinists a bad name. Um, people hate this doctrine. Uh, what's commonly called limited atonement. Now I think some of the reason this doctrine is so hated is because it has such a hate-worthy name. I hate that terminology, limited atonement. It sounds. Um, well, it sounds limited. What we want to say is particular redemption. And the way I put this is that God in Christ died on purpose. That is, when he suffered and he died, he accomplished exactly what he meant to accomplish. So we're talking about particular redemption today. We're talking about what's commonly called limited atonement. So what was Christ's intention? In the atonement, what was the purpose 
of Christ. What we want to start out by talking about is Isaiah 53. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 53. So in Isaiah 53, the whole chapter is just absolutely beautiful. It talks about the suffering. It's even called sometimes the suffering servant. It actually starts in Isaiah 52. It talks about Christ being marred beyond even recognition as a man, the, his beard being pulled out of his face. It talks about um, how by his stripes we are healed. His, it's really a prophecy of his crucifixion. Now, but, but what's the intention of this? In Isaiah 53:10, it pleased the Lord, Yahweh, to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. Now, this isn't popular to say, but I'll say it. If this was the only passage we had on the atonement, this would be enough to believe in what's called particular redemption. Jesus died on purpose, and in dying, he saved as many as are drawn to him by the Father and given the Holy Spirit. By his life, death, and resurrection, he saved all who will have faith in him. In other words, for the unbeliever who will spend eternity in hell, Jesus did not die for them. Jesus did not die for everybody without exception. Look at the intention of God in the atonement. It pleased Yahweh, pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When he makes a soul an offering for sin, okay, so right there you have that Christ. We're going to get to his priesthood in a second, but right there you see his sacrifice. He is the sacrifice sin. He shall see his seed, his his posterity. We are his new creation. The church is his creation. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It pleased Yahweh what he did. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And this isn't talking about a looking down the quarters of time. Remember what Isaiah has already said in Isaiah 46. This God has decreed the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my purpose will stand. God will do all that's in his pleasure. He will, um, he, will see, um, he will see the travail of his soul, the labor of his soul, and be satisfied on a completed work. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, capital S on that servant, who, who the servant of the Lord even mentioned in Isaiah 49, he will bear whose iniquities? The people he justified. For by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many... For he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, if Christ died for everybody without exception, everybody without exception would be saved. We are saved not by our reaction to his sacrifice, but by his sacrifice itself. I want to talk to you about the Trinitarian aspect of the atonement, that Every member of the Trinity is taking on a different role in the atonement. Um, first of all, we need, we need to talk about the ontological Trinity, which is God in and of himself, that God before all time existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one being three persons perfectly equal and glorious in every way. 
we would probably do an entire show on the Trinity sometime. But we also distinct distinct from that. That's the ontological Trinity. That is God's ontology. His 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 being. That is God. He has always been that way. He always will be that way. But when we talk about the economic trinity, God, for reasons of his self-glorification, remember our, our series on sovereignty, the purpose of the world, the purpose of God decreeing the story the way that it would be is for his self-glorification. Right? We call it the economic trinity. That is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit take on different roles in redemption, again, to glorify the triune God. That's, this is why we worship. This is why we gather on Sunday to hear his word and partake of him. This is where we experience our forgiveness of sins, and we do so in beholding God as he's revealed himself to be. Now, each memory, each memory, each member of the Trinity is in and of himself God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They are not three separate gods. They are one God, one what, three who's. But they take on different roles in redemption. I want to show you that the Father is the one who draws the people for whom Christ died and intercedes to the Son. And the Father and the Son give the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that out of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, this is, this is open and shut. No one can come to Christ metaphor for believing in him, unless the Father draws him. Now, is the Father drawing anybody who will not come to the Son? The answer is no. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that out of all he has given me, I shall lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This is where our friends who are not Reformed teeter on blasphemy, because they start to mention that, yes, but not all of God's perfect will actually happens. But that's not what Psalm 115, 135, uh, Psalm 139, Isaiah 46, Ephesians 111. They go on and on and on. No purpose can be withheld from God. He predestines all things after the counsel of his will. So this is the will of the Father who sent me that all of these given me, which is the only basis that you would ever come to Jesus, is that the Father gave you and was drawing you, that I shall lose nothing, Christ speaking, but should raise it up on the last day. If anybody is being drawn by the Father to the Son and does not experience resurrection life by Christ on the last day, Jesus' intention in the cross failed. There's no other way to read that. This is the will of the Father. Did Jesus succeed in fulfilling the Father's will or no? That's really what this question is about. We're addressing what's such a controversial doctrine amongst those who would claim the name Christianity for themselves. But in actuality, we need to stop pretending this is a secondary doctrine. This goes right into the efficacy of the atonement. Now, I, I want to hasten to say, I'm not saying everybody who disagrees with limited atonement is, is going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you understand it and reject it, I'm officially worried about you. I hope that's fair. Okay. 
Um, it, yeah, but with that, I also want to say there there was a there was a debate between Dr. Michael Brown and Sonny Hernandez. And uh, I got to tell you, Sonny Hernandez mentioned that this is a gospel issue and it's at the heart of the gospel, and he was right. He went on to just represent it in just in the worst way possible. Dr. Michael Brown, on an academic level, wiped the floor with Sonny. And at the end of that, he's kicking Dr. Michael Brown out of the kingdom. I think most of the time when people reject this out of hand, it's because on some level they don't understand it. Remember, traditions are huge blinders. So we're not kicking anybody by name out of the kingdom. We are saying this goes to the heart of the gospel, and if we're going to recover the gospel in this land, we need this restored in the church's pulpit. Get the idea of individualism out of your head. Different individuals will have different understandings. It's unfortunate. We ask the Lord to heal us of our of our understandings. Lord, forgive us for our secondary doctrines and and all these kind of and all this and all this um, disunity we have while we're in the flesh and while we're on this side of eternity. The reality is, the church needs to, as a corporate entity, as the bride of Christ, behold His intention for the atonement. Let's talk about the priesthood of Christ. We talk about Christ being the sacrifice and being the one who accomplishes this redemption. The Father draws all of those who are going to be saved to the Son, and the Son raises all of them up on the last day. Not one is lost. Okay. Now let's talk about uh, Christ's intention as priest. Christ's intention as priest. As priest, we see um, his intercession. Remember, Take a look at Leviticus. We don't understand the gospel because we don't read Leviticus. Or if we do, we don't know why it's there. Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. Remember, when the high priest offered the sacrifice for the sins of the people once a year, he wasn't done after the sacrifice was was slain. Right? He had to go into the Holy of Holies and make intercession. So we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That It's by him we hold fast our confession. He's the high priest who is able to sympathize with us in every way, that, in every way because he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. We approach this throne of grace to find grace and obtain mercy in our time of need. So what is Christ's efficacy of his intercession because that's the priestly work. Remember, on the cross, he was simultaneously the high priest over the sacrifice and the sacrifice being given, one and the same. Hebrews 7.24, but, but he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Remember, other priests were, were kept from doing their priestly duty because they died, but he continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw, who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen to that again. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who, draw, who, who, who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, how does that work? The intercession of Christ is the means by which you are saved to the uttermost, you who have come to God. Now, we just read, you can't come to God, you can't come to Christ unless the Father draws you. How and why did the Father pick you instead of somebody else? The kind intention of his will. That's really that's the entirety of it. The kind intention of God has drawn you to the Son if you're truly in him. And it's based on this intercession 
right? So before all worlds, Christ interceded for his people. The Father said yes and drew them to the Son. In the surety of your salvation is not in your performance or your perseverance or anything else. The surety of your salvation is on Christ's unchangeable priesthood and his intercession. We're going to go now to the to what's commonly called the Old Testament. I prefer First Testament. We believe in long covenant of grace. Listen to these words from Ezekiel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. Then... You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that are not good, and you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. All right. So common soteriology or the common doctrine of salvation teaches that Jesus did it all, and now you have to repent and believe. If you repent and believe, then you'll find that Jesus did it all. Well, not to mention that's a logical contradiction. If Jesus did it all, there'd be nothing left to do. I want you to just see in Ezekiel, here's the role of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the role of the Son. He intercedes before all worlds and will intercede forevermore. We talk about how the Father draws the people whom Christ is interceding for to the Son, how through his life, death, and resurrection, he makes propitiation. He removes the wrath of God and imputes his righteousness to them. And now the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14 call the Holy Spirit the arabon, the down payment, how God goes into the believer's debt until all that he has promised comes to fruition. And what does it look like when the Holy Spirit is sent and given to a people? I will sprinkle them with clean water, a picture of baptism. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. By the way, if, if what baptism symbolizes is this cleansing, the washing away from sin, and I'll admit it does symbolize that, but it also confirms grace. We'll talk about the efficacy of the sacraments in a, at a later time. If that's the picture that it's, that it's picturing, if that's the symbol that, that's being given, then sprinkling in verse 25 is a completely acceptable means of baptism. But that's just free. I'll defend that later, but I'll just state it for now. God sprinkles you with clean water, spiritual baptism. He cleanses you from all your filthiness and all your idols. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new spirit. He takes out the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. Then verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. All right. So when the Holy Spirit is given, you are regenerated. You were spiritually dead, Ephesians 2 says. Then you were made alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's often objected because we believe that God does not only all of the saving, but all of the sanctifying, that you can just go ahead and live however you want. No, if you have the Holy Spirit, he will cause you, verse 27, to, keep, to walk in my statutes, to keep my judgments and do them. Perfectly in this life? No, but progressively growing into the image of Christ. 
So what would have to happen in order for somebody to, quote-unquote, lose their salvation? Well, the son would have to stop interceding for them. I guess he would be telling the father that he bore his wrath in their place, but then all of a sudden he would have to change his mind and say, never mind, I'm not going to intercede for that guy because he crossed the line. So you turn the intercession of Christ into, never mind, Dad, he's a jerk. And I just find that just utterly repulsive. You should too. You would have to show that the father could draw somebody and they get away. There's just a terrible fisher of men, I guess. And then the Holy Spirit would come and give new desires to cause you to keep and do them, but your almighty free will pushed off the very spirit that hovered over the surface of the waters. This is anything short of Christ doing exactly what he was sent to do in the life, death, and resurrection is utter blasphemy. It's utter blasphemy. Uh, elsewhere, we get we get very very blunt statements like um, uh, for you, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your very name is written on His hand. Well, was it written in pencil? When when Christ had His church in mind on the cross, is there anybody? Is there anybody for whom He set His love? that isn't brought into efficacious faith in him? Give me an example. And don't say Judas. That is the dumbest example imaginable. He's a son of perdition, given that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And by the way, if you have an entire ministry where you're scouring the scriptures, trying to find somebody who Jesus died for that's actually lost in the end, like Leighton Flowers, that really needs to be called out for what it is. You're marring the work of Christ. That's very disturbing. No, Jesus, whom he died for, is whom he intercedes for. They are brought to the Son by the drawing of the Father, and they are given the Holy Spirit to keep his statutes and to do them, to walk in obedience. We also hear things like, um, uh, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the Son of God who loved, him, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that doesn't say he didn't give himself for the people who are in hell. Yeah, it kind of does. Think about it. Can somebody cry out from the pit of hell and say, God loved me and gave himself for me, but I frustrated the will of my maker. I didn't get in good on the deal. Again, how great is the cross in your mind? How precious is salvation in your mind? We see in Acts twenty twenty eight that it's it's actually said that Christ shed his blood for the church. The throne room in heaven is saying, For out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, you have redeemed a people by your blood. By your blood, you've redeemed a people out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Can the unbeliever say that? you're hearing me get a little bit passionate about this. It's because the vast majority of Christians here in America, at least, and I would assume throughout the world because we're, we're busy exporting our heresy. That's what American Christians do. Um, We're so shallow that there's not nearly enough to just sit in love and adore about God. We have to put together all sorts of ministries and everything else. We need to keep ourselves entertained by our very, very surface-level Christianity. We're about as deep as a wet spot in the pavement, but we're happy to spread it into all the world. It's an amazing thing. Can you stare at the cross and marvel 
did Jesus is is anything withheld from the Son by the Father? That's really what we're asking here. Furthermore, am I saying you don't have to repent and believe? No, you will repent and believe. Everybody who's saved repents and believes. And if they're obedient, they're baptized. If you repent and believe in Christ and uh, and you just desire to be baptized, please find me. And I, I, will, I will travel anywhere I need to to get to you. It's not biblical to make you jump through a bunch of catechetical hoops, uh, catechism hoops. Um, it's not biblical to, to, to make you go a prolonged period of time without the waters of baptism. If you've repented and believe in Christ, come to, come to the Church of Philadelphia, and we will baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I'm with, efficacy of baptism is another day. I keep on trying to go down that road. I need to stop myself. So the Father draws to the Son, the Son through his life, death, and resurrection, absolves you of the Father's wrath, imputes his righteousness to you. By his intercession, he keeps you. The Holy Spirit causes you to walk in his commandments and to do them. And the Holy Spirit is the giver of repentance and faith. Repentance is a gift. 2 Timothy 2.25, Acts 11.18, I think. Um, We see that repentance is a gift. A gift. Faith is a gift. Philippians one twenty nine. Second Peter one one. Uh, these Ephesians two eight. All of these things are graces, if we could say that from Christ. And the singular grace of God, capital G, is Christ Himself. Last thought. What's the difference between you and an unbeliever? Did you hear the gospel and react better? Are you more spiritually sensitive? Did you just maybe hear a better presentation? What's the difference between you and an unbeliever? And I'm going to tell you it's Ephesians 1.4, the kind intention of his will. The kind intention of his will. If you're truly in Christ, there's nothing left for you to do. Then be grateful and let it form your worship. Let it form your worship. So I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Christ has done everything the Father has sent him to do, and the Holy Spirit is our down payment. Praise be to God.